Um, being a National Maritime Museum, we try and uh, represent in our gallery space differences from all different communities across Australia, so we're not just Sydney-based. But the name Eora does come from the Sydney language and the Sydney area, and that's just us recognising the land and the space that we're on, and I'd like to take the time to acknowledge the Gadigal people, the traditional owners of the land we're on today. You say, Colin. <laughs> you know, for me, you're in the future. Like, uh, like a man on the moon or in a tin pan. Welcome to the Eat Radio Podcast, and here's your host, Colin Pope, from Eat Magazine. Hi, Cullen here, coming to you from Sydney, and I'm outside the Australian National Maritime Museum, a very special place here in Sydney, right by the waterside. I really encourage you to call in uh, there next time you're in Sydney. If you're planning to come to Sydney, coming to Australia, certainly make your way here. We're going in, we're going to be speaking with uh, Bo, who's uh, giving us a tour of really precious works of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island uh, culture, some really precious works that have uh, been looked after by uh, this gallery and um, really sort of incredibly elaborately carved pieces and so as well as a lot of other works and so we'll jump straight into it with Bo now. Hi, it's Cullen here from the Eat Magazine podcast, and I'm at the Australian National Maritime Museum. Did I get that right? Very, very correct. Um, and I'm the manager of Indigenous programs here at the museum, Brilliant. so that's my position. Great. Um, and we are here this morning in our Eora Gallery, um, and our Eora Gallery is where we display the objects from our Indigenous collection, which we have over 4,000 different objects at the moment in our collection. Um, being a National Maritime Museum, we try and uh, represent in our gallery space differences from all different communities across Australia, so we're not just Sydney-based. But the name Eora does come from the Sydney language and the Sydney area, and that's just us recognising the land and the space that we're on, and I'd like to take the time to acknowledge the Gadigal people, the traditional owners of the land we're on today. The first thing we've come across in our gallery space here is uh, the burial poles from northeast Arnhem Land, uh, from Yonu country. Uh, the burial poles are quite significant in the circle of life for Yonu, and these ones uh, we bought from the art centre, but traditionally um, when a person is deceased, they would either bury them or put them high up in a tree branch, um, wait for the flesh to come off the bones and then about a year or so or two years later, however long it would take, they'd come back and collect the bones and put them inside these hollow log coffins which the family had prepared. Um, usually the hollow log coffins, of course, um, were decorated with the person's um, clan group or their design or their totem. So uh, that's those. Um, beside them we have our beautiful saltwater barks which are also from the same area. These saltwater barks are part of an 80 that we have in our collection and they were all part of the Yirrkala Sea Rights um, claim that happened up there and uh, it came about by the local elders walking around their estate and they came across a poacher's camp. And within the poacher's camp they found um, in Hessian bags the severed head of a crocodile or the severed head of Baru, they call the crocodile up there, and that made them quite upset and they needed to explain to... Um, the white people and non-Indigenous people, how important this area was and that you couldn't go around desecrating areas like that. They were even more upset that the killing of Baru happened in Baru's nesting place. And, of course, part of their culture is maintaining 
animals and plants for survival and so to kill something in its nesting place was very against their law. So they created these 80 bark paintings, um, which had never been done before and showing their secret designs as well. So first time for community showing outsiders their, their mapping and their secret designs. So can I, can I ask you just going back to the burial holes? And so really when we look at the paintings, that's really part of a person's story, isn't it? The story of their life, their clan, their... Absolutely. All of that speaks of a person, their identity, where they're from, which part of country they're from, who they're related to. Um, and originally, uh, before this stuff, I mean, the poles would have been painted, but all these markings would have gone on a person's body as part of ceremony as well. So always joined. So even before bark paintings were being done, you know, this, these markings were going on bodies so that you knew who you were, who you were related to, and things like that. So... Yep, so as I said, they're both from the same area, so the burial poles sort of go with the barks. And as I said, it's about Indigenous culture and Indigenous life is full circle. Life's always circular, comings and goings, um, and especially in, in Yonu culture, um, you know, rebirthing, dying, rebirthing. So, But, yeah, beautiful works and a very very significant part of our collection, the 80 barks. The 80 barks were also um, then used as court evidence for a sea rights claim for the Yonu mob, which they ended up um, finally getting. It went to the High Court and they ended up getting their sea rights there and that was due to these 80 bark paintings that helped prove their connection to country and land. So, so part of that important storytelling that was able to be carried through and then taken to basically court. Yeah, yeah, and, and artworks used as evidence too, which, you know, for an Australian court system to use artworks as evidence, this was very new. Um, but again, their way of showing their connection and their knowing of the lands, like all these different lines, uh, the diagonal lines um, and straight lines mean salt water, fresh water, low tide, high tide. So within that, there's all different symbols and mapping of country and beautiful works. And look, they range from size, as you can see there, from half a metre long to we've got really big barks that are like 2.8 by 3 metres long down in our collection. So you can imagine how big the tree was that came off them. And, and it's, it's all one piece of bark? One piece of bark, uh, stringy bark, off the stringy bark tree up there, that's... Um, comes off very easily. I went out collecting with the bark with the fellas when I was up there and surprisingly they got it off so quickly off the trees. Um, hard work, sweating, sweating their little butts off. But, um, yeah, be beautiful work. We'll bring it back to community, lay it down, flatten it on the ground in community with a couple of besser bricks and um, do their beautiful artwork. And then it comes to our space, which, of course, it gets treated totally different once it ends up in our museum space as well. Uh, then you've got all the conservation things and preservation things that go on with the bark so and they they look remarkably can i say uh, not fresh but they look remarkably um vibrant vibrant and i think th the other beautiful thing about uh these works too i believe that the ochres and that we used actually came from country so there's that connection as well it's not just about slapping anything down on the the canvas you know what i mean the Everything relates back to country and, again, part of our, our conservation team here is looking after and preserving these things so they do try to say as true to form as possible, you know, but they're natural barks too. So over time they do shift a little bit, um, fluctuations in temperature within the gallery space. So, but again, you know, part of our job here is the, the preservation and, and trying to maintain these. A lot of these artists are now deceased too that originally painted these. So um, very important part of the collection.
There's a, there is a whole book on them too, so if you'd like to read about it, um, Yirikala Saltwater Barks book, if anyone would like to look at that further. Okay, great. We might actually put the uh, link to that book as well, and yeah. this is just to give people a reference so they can go back to that. Yep, I know it's available in our store, and a lot of the other gallery spaces around do have that book as well because it's quite a prominent collection. So, uh, Staying up the top end here, these are, these are our Men and Greta um, sculptures, fibre art sculptures. Uh, made out of pandanus leaf and dyed from the natural bush dyes. Um, usually the women do a lot of the weaving and stuff um, around here. And again, I suppose the most important sort of little object sitting here, as you can see over here, the sort of mermaid-looking figure. And up in their language, that's called a York York. And usually a female figure, and she's usually um, guarding the billabongs and freshwater streams and stuff like that. So a lot of stories um, and dances and that's, that go around with the York York from that area. But again, um, very prominent up in that area, the, the, the pandanus and the, the weaving by the women. And uh, we can see that's a, it's a ray, isn't it? It's yeah, yeah. So again, um, they're looking at their environment and what they're um, seeing, they create back in their art. So whether that was someone's totem or whether they're just reflecting on the waters around them and what their food is and what they, they collect. But yeah, you've got your stingray, your jellyfish, um, Another stingray up there, your, your flat one. So you can see the difference in the artwork too compared to the flat one and the, the more 3D sort of puffed up design, which is then stuffed with fibre as well. Same as the York York there. And so what sort of fibre would they have been stuffing those It'd with? It would be like the dry grass trees and things like that. So, um, and spinifex, bit of spinifex stuff, the dry spinifex stuffed in, inside. Um, and uh, I guess they're jellyfish, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, so the jellyfish, and again, it's just them looking out. Um, I had the chance to go up to that area as well, and you, you sit there at their art centre and you can see all these animals just swimming straight out in the water, you know, so it's what they're seeing every day. It's part of them, it's their connection, it's their culture. Um, someone would have one of those as their totem, so it's their responsibility to make sure that stingray area is looked after or where they nest, you know, things like that. So, And so I, I suppose there is that whole... That whole thing about, I guess, uh, that the nest really, when you look in terms of that kind of cultural way of looking at that, that this nest or this land, it's our nest, it's the nest of the creatures that we share it with. And, yep. and that's part of the common, uh, I guess, the common worldview, if I can say that in Absolutely. a way. Absolutely. And look, there's a beautiful quote that came from one of the Yonu artists, and I can't remember which one it was, but they said that they're the voice for country and for sea. Um, country and sea can't sing or speak, but Yonu people can sing and dance country, which is a voice for country, which then helps with the maintenance of country. So, you know, always looking out, always seeing what's there, always protecting. It's the maintenance, um, which of course then um, maintains language as well. You know, so along with the land and the sea maintenance is that continual revival of language and culture and dance and ceremony that goes along with it. And uh, I noticed that, that this is called Saltwater Country. For those um, people that are just very uh, new to learning about, uh, I guess, the different kind of countries, can you just give us a little bit of an insight into the different kind of countries and lands that the people are connected to? Yep. So I suppose with um, Indigenous people, the two ways we um, 
have a relationship with water is we're either saltwater people or freshwater people. So, of course, your saltwater people are all the ones around the coastlines and then you've got your freshwater people that are more inland, but always a water source around that we relied on in order to survive. So, yeah, saltwater or freshwater people. Brilliant. Over this side... So as I said, we, we like to have a representation from all different um, states around Australia to show this, and this is our, our Tiwi Island. Again, these are burial poles, ceremonial poles, very different to the Yonu ones. So the Yonu ones, they put the bones inside. With the Tiwi poles, these are made by men, usually in the community when someone passes away. Like the ones over there, your pole does contain your clan, your patterns, your connection to country, but the higher standing you had in the community, the higher your pole would be. So that's how you knew someone's status within the community. These were made and placed um, around the grave with the people's belongings and different things like that. So Tiwi Island people also very much believe in reincarnation. So having these things here um, would make sure the person, when they went on to their next life or their next journey, they still had that connection and knew who they were and where they were from. You can see the arm, feathered armbands sitting in front here. They were also part of the ceremony, so they'd wear them on their arms as part of that burial ceremony. And also the tunga bag, which you can see over to the side here too. Um, beautiful made bark bags, again with the traditional markings and paintings on them. During someone's life, they would have used their bag for collecting food, collecting things. When a person passes away, the bags are hung on top of the poles. And again, that's a bag that follows through to the next life for the person. So they still have their belongings and their things with them as they pass over. And so that's also, I guess, very similar in a way to actually that person's story uh, being reflected in the artwork, the story of their life, the story of their clan, and then all of that being sort of uh, I guess, taken with them into the afterlife in a way. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's that's exactly what it's for. So they're still finding, you know, they still know their way. They've still got that connection. They're not going to get lost anywhere. So it's just taking them over to the other side and still having all their things there. Like the pharaohs, they used to do that a lot with the pharaohs and stuff, bury them with all their things. So very similar, still that connection and, and not losing that ever. So again, circular, that cycle continuing on. Brilliant. And I noticed uh, that you had said that uh, this is the, the Tiwi, which is actually a language group, isn't it? Do you want to tell us a little bit about the language groupings in a, in a general sense? I'm, so the Tiwi Island area, the languages up there I'm not very familiar with, but I do know that there's three different art centres on the different areas of the island that I actually went and saw. So um, as far as their language groups, I'd have to do a little bit more research on that. But, you know, like all over Australia, before um, colonisation, we had over 600 different dialects and languages here. I think there's probably about 62 or 63 that have survived at the moment. But, of course, up in the Tiri area, I'd say each little island would have had their own different sort of dialect um, that they would have spoken. So, And still speak today, sorry, I should say. That language is very prominent up there in the island still. So, And when we look at, I guess, uh, the significant of the significance of the feathers on the armbands related to those stories... Uh, because they're very colourful and it looks like there's been a lot of thought put together in terms of that way they were gathered and, and put together and placed on the arm. Yeah, so definitely it's about the, as part of this ceremony, it's about the cockatoo feather and um, the, the, the feather expresses their grief um, and through song and dance they express that. So it's just part of the ceremony and I suppose the, the letting go of someone in that, as I said, that cyclic life and death. 
All right, great. And um, as we as we move across, and this has been a permanent collection for quite some time. Yeah, so I believe the, the, the objects that are in this space at the moment have been here probably for the last eight years. Um, the museum at the moment is just going through a refurbish of all our gallery space, but look, it'll still take a year or two, I think, for things to transfer over, but over time this will change because, again, with conservation and preserving things, things need a rest and need to come off display so that the, the preservation saves. So we'll swap over the bark paintings and swap over some of these fibre, especially the Indigenous area with the fibre stuff, definitely needs a rest. But this little space here, we're looking at our Tasmanian section. Um, and a lot of the works we have here is works by the women. So Tasmanian Aboriginal people, um, massacres and things went on down in Tasmania. And at one stage it was thought that there were no, it was said that there were to be no more Aboriginal people left in Tasmania. Um, that these days has proven to be false. Um, there are descendants coming out, um, who are still around. Um, one of the, two of the things actually that have become, remained very strong with the, um, Tasmanian women are the um, seaweed baskets, kelp baskets, and the woven works, and also the beautiful shell necklaces. Um, the kelp basket, they've tried to draw on tradition as much as possible, but again, with culture being lost, um, they've looked at paintings and drawings and pictures and worked it out and, and have come pretty close to the basket. I know that there was a traditional basket that came over with the Encounters exhibition earlier this year and I believe one of the Tasmanian women had seen something that they hadn't quite been doing to, to fix it. So it was, I think it was a really lovely moment for them to see one of those traditional baskets and and um, rethink what they'd been doing. So, And these are very uh, intricate, the design, they look really strong. You would have been able to carry lots of things in there. What would, what would the, the woman have been carrying in those? Absolutely. So different things. So um, whether it be food from the bush, their berries or things like that, or from the ocean, you would have had your clams, your oysters as well. But within here, you've also got traps. So this one up here is an eel trap. So you've got your carrying baskets plus your fish and eel traps. And this is another one down here, I believe, as well, which is a, a fish trap or an eel trap as such. So not just their baskets, traps as well for trapping the fish or sardine scoops as well for scooping the fish. And what uh, do you know what kind of feathers those are? Because they look like they're from a very, um, I guess, a very young bird. Would that yeah. be right? So emu feather, I believe those ones are. And whether it, yeah, they like look quite downy, don't they? So it might have been a younger bird rather than a, a, a adult bird. But again, I've never been that close to an emu and its feathers, so I don't know. But yeah, very soft. But you can see how they're all woven in there too. And with these beautiful works, I love the way that they, um, the joins. Sometimes you can hardly see where they've joined. They've woven it in so beautifully. Yeah, very, very intricate yeah. and, um, and, and really look very strong, very powerful. Yeah. And, uh, and I guess these are the, these are the fantastic necklaces. Yeah. So the, the shell necklaces, which the women are still doing. Um, again, very intricate. Um, some of these shells can only be collected at a certain time of year too. So the, the shiny, uh, shells that we have down here, the blue mariner, they're actually collected off the seaweed that's floating in the water at a certain time of year. And I believe you only have like a three-hour window or something which, in which to collect those shells as well. So, um, of course, overfishing and over collecting of shells these days too, I think they're becoming quite scarce and quite rare. Um, the women, you can see the how tiny these shells are too and making the holes um, in the shells would take so much patience and time and skill. And they'd usually use the eye tooth of a wallaby 
which is what they'd use to try and make the holes in these shells so small. Um, and then thread it traditionally probably on a bit of sinew, um, something like that. But these days, um, I think they're using more contemporary stuff like the cotton. But still, again, I've just displayed some of these over in an exhibition in Monaco. So we've got, I think, about eight or nine of these necklaces over in an exhibition over there. Um, when I was laying in that, I still can't find, again, the join on these either because they've done it so well. Um, but really beautiful works. I noticed here that there was a reference to mutton birding. Whereabouts would that have occurred? Yeah, so that was um, a very big thing in Tasmania was the mutton bird. There was one particular family, the Maynard family, I believe, um, who were very involved in the mutton birding, and there's a series of photographs um, of them in the mutton birding. Um, this, this, Funny enough, this is one area that I don't know a lot about is the mutton birding photos. Um I be, as I said, I believe there's about 20 to 30 of them in our collection. Um, again, I believe it was seasonal work. Um, and as I said, the Aboriginal family doing it. You can see from the pictures too, hard work on the hands by the look of it with all the cuts and the, um, I'd say the defeathering of the, the mutton birds and things like that. So. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that um, a tremendous amount of work. Just as we, I, I guess because... Um, we can hear the sounds in the background, and that's coming from a story, from a video. Do you want to just walk us through part of what we can hear and part of what that story is? Yeah, so the beautiful soundtrack you can hear behind um, is about is a, like a little 15-minute documentary made by the Yonu, which explains their connection to saltwater country, so explaining their saltwater barks, their collection to, connection to country, the reason why they made the saltwater barks, and their... Um, one of their leaders up there, Jumbawa, uh, Marawili, is the main um, talker on this. But you can see the beautiful footage taking you over country. And when you start to see this footage and then look at the saltwater barks too, you can start to see the land and the landscape within the, the works as well. So, yeah, really made to support the barks and, and give you more a sense of place and country and clan groups of life up um, in Ar northeast Arnhem Land there. So... And uh, the sounds and the, the the singing and the sticks, this is part of the telling of this story of this land? Absolutely. Um, this would be singing about a particular area or a particular clan group, so this would be their song. Again, each clan group has their own songs because, of course, they have their own relationship with the sea or the country, so it's their space and where they're in is what they sing about um, in order to pass down as well and maintain. So, And uh, I guess just... Uh, Wrapping up for uh, people, when we uh, the sound that we can hear those uh, sticks, uh, they are not just traditional to that area. There's lots of different uh, tribes, clans that would have had those sticks. What's the significance of those? Look, it's just as I said, it's just part of their ceremony and their song and their instruments they used in order to, like anything, maintain their rhythms, their tunes, their dancing. You know, it, it's it's all part of it. Uh, very much. Um, the clapsticks or two boomerangs too, they'd clap together quite often. So, um, again, depending on the group, who they were, what they did, um, yeah, used a lot in the music as is a didgeridoo and things like that. But, yeah, they'd have their own rhythms, timings, songs, dances um, to go with those sticks. So, Brilliant. Look, thank you very much for your time today. It's been tremendous. I'm glad that we didn't have time to cover ed everything by any means because I guess the idea is to get people to come in to get a sense, to get a feel of 
everything that's in here as uh, the story, I guess, continues. And, and you said that there may be some changes down the track as well. And so that's, that must be a very exciting part of your work here as well. Oh, absolutely. And every time I go into our objects collection, we're always discovering new and different things. Um, but I suppose if people did want to come in and have a look at the gallery, not only the gallery space, but we always have um, an exhibition which has um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander content in it, so you're always going to get some form of culture. We have a beautiful traditional watercraft display that's about to go up in our foyer with watercraft from WA, Tasmania and the local area here. So there's always something going on to show people um, Indigenous link to saltwater, freshwater country and maritime culture and heritage. Brilliant. Thank you very much for your time. It's been an amazing pleasure to be here and uh, really enjoyed uh, the time that you've taken to share your story with us. Thank you, everybody. Thanks for uh, joining us and uh, very generously, Bo, uh, taking time to uh, give us all of that information, particularly about uh, the saltwater barks. Uh, really fascinating story and i guess for me i suppose the takeaway there was really when you think about um that connection with land you think about even you know the story of the stingray and looking after the nest of the stingray and then you think about how that translates uh in many ways i think today when you know we can see that you know plastic bags are sort of being banned and um taken off the menu at so many places and you think about how important making all of these physical changes to the way that we interact with the environment and um i really think there's a lot to be learnt uh, from some of these stories and so great to have you join us for that as you may or may not know um uh, with this sydney series we're about to take off somewhere about to leave sydney we're going somewhere else for the weekend very cold and um so i look forward to you joining us for that that. And if you want more details on the precious works, you can get the, those from the Australian National Maritime Museum. And the website is anmm.gov.au. And as always, we'll put um, the link in and there's some great, some great photos in there as well. So look forward to you catching us next time. And just a reminder, if you're coming to Sydney and you'd like to come in and see uh, that exhibition as one as the incredible uh, exhibitions there you can find those details at www.anmm.gov.au I've included those links in the podcast as well so you can click through to those uh, exhibitions and uh, obviously uh, the museum is open every day from 9.30 to 5 p.m. Uh, and, of course, it extends through into those summer hours of 6 p.m. in January. And uh, such an incredible experience, an amazing place to be. And uh, we really look forward to you getting more details on our website at eattmag.com. Cheers. If you're a listener in the U.S., you can simply text the word EATMAG, which is E-A-T-T-M-A-G. And if you want that in Echo, uh, Art, Technology, Travel, M for Maggie, A for Apple, G for Grapple, uh, it's EATMAG. And you can text that if you're in the U.S. now to one four eight zero four one eight one four. 
6-1-4-2-8-1-1. If you're in Australia, you simply text the word EATMAG to 61-428-479-700. If you're in the United Kingdom, in the UK, Scotland, England, Wales, you can text Ireland as well. You can text EATMAG to 447903 and if you're in Canada, you can simply text EATMAG to 1587-800-4323. And you can just replay those numbers. I know it sounds like there's a lot of numbers in there, but wherever you are, you can just text EATMAG from those four countries if you're in there, and we'll um, send you some instructions, and you can basically subscribe to our updates that way. So really pleased to finally get that off the ground. And uh, thank you very much for joining us and we'll see you next time.